Hi there, RJ here. Before we get going, we'd like to make an appeal to you this holiday season and kindly ask that you consider supporting Making Contact by becoming a donor, thereby becoming a member of a growing cohort of media-savvy supporters that believe in the value of independent media. We're grateful that you've made it here to the end of this incredibly tumultuous year. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we do certainly hope that we're among the set of podcasts worth giving to. And since we're a nonprofit, your donation is tax deductible. One of the few deductibles that didn't get cut with the passage of the new tax law. Anyway, please visit our website, radioproject.org, where you'll find the donate button. You can't miss it. Thanks for your time. And now, here's the show. Hey there, this is Marie Cha. You're listening to Making Contact. I went to Korea in May, expecting to find a story about the candlelight movement that ousted President Park Geun-hye and the political shifts that are taking place on the peninsula. Instead, I found a country grappling with its ghosts. In part one of this series, we went to Gwangju, the city at the heart of Korea's people's movements. Today, we're headed to Gyeongsangbuk-do in the southeast. Politically, it's like the deep south of Korea. It's historically been the base of support for U.S.-backed military dictators. It's where Park Jung-hee and Chun Doo-hwan grew up, and the region benefited most from infrastructure projects and industrial development under the military regime. Today, Gyeongsangbuk-do continues to support right-wing nationalist politicians and is known for being deeply anti-communist. But with the deployment of THAAD, part of the U.S. missile defense system, things are beginning to change. THAAD is being deployed in Seosongri, a small village nestled in the mountains of Seongju County. The entire village could fit in two or three city blocks, and almost all the residents are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Farming towns like this, made up primarily of elders, it's typical for rural Korea these days. A century of colonial rule, industrial development, and free trade agreements have taken a toll. It's nearly impossible to make a living farming, and waves of young people have left the countryside, searching for work in bigger cities. But Seongju County, the area surrounding Sosongi, is something of an exception. Farmers there have been able to survive by growing a regional specialty, chane, small, sweet, yellow-striped melons. It's the Korea you hear about in old folk songs. Rolling hills, forests, small rice paddies, and clear streams. An old pickup truck drives through the town each day, announcing over a bullhorn what they're selling that day. But life in this quiet village has been turned upside down by Thad. I meet grandmas and grandpas in the town hall, which has been transformed into a protest camp and 24-hour blockade. Around 20 of them have gathered for their daily study session. That day, they're practicing protest songs. Shin Dong-ok is the head of the village elders group. His short, thick hair is more salt than pepper, and creases crinkle around his mouth and eyes as he talks and laughs. 
He wears thick glasses and speaks with a deep regional accent. He was born and raised in Sosangmi. Back then, people planted rice and barley by hand, but it was too hard to make a living. So he moved to a nearby city and found work in the maintenance department at a U.S. military base. When he grew older, he wanted to return to his hometown. Today, he's in his 80s. Before Thad came, he and his wife spent their days growing chili peppers, perilla, chives. They would get together with the other town elders to play hatsu and drink. Everyone I meet there talks about how well they got along and how fun it was to live together. Now they spend most of their days organizing blockades and rallies. We hadn't anything about the thing called the thud. Not even the name. But we know it was a weapon. We can't even pronounce it whether it's thud or thud. So they said it's coming to our country somewhere around here. Then suddenly it came to the Sosongri Golf Course. And they didn't even say one word about it to us. Then what are we supposed to do? There's an old saying in the middle of the night. A wooden roller comes flying at you. That's how suddenly they decided to put sad in the Sosongri Golf Course. That is part of a missile defense system that was created to allow the United States to carry out a nuclear first strike. It sets up a shield so that the U.S. can use nuclear weapons without fear of retaliation. People around the world recognized how dangerous it would be for a country to have both nuclear weapons and a missile defense system. So in 1972, the U.S. and the Soviet Union signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and agreed not to develop these systems. But with the election of Ronald Reagan, everything changed. I call upon the scientific community in our country, those who gave us nuclear weapons. Reagan pitched missile defense as a project for peace and poured over 100 billion tax dollars into the project. Shortly after 9-11, George W. Bush officially pulled out of the ABM treaty. Is withdrawing from this almost 30-year-old treaty. And the U.S. began deploying missile defense systems around the world. Asia became a focal point after President Barack Obama's election, when then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton began focusing U.S. military and economic resources on controlling the trillions of dollars in trade that flows through China, Japan, and Southeast Asia each year. That in the 21st century, the world's strategic and economic center of gravity will be the Asia-Pacific. She called it the Pacific Pivot. At a private speech for Goldman Sachs in 2013, Clinton threatened to, quote, ring China with missile defense, unquote, if China did not contain North Korea. That is part of that ring of missiles around China, 
and for the harmonies and harabajis of Sosongri. Thad has spent many sleepless nights. I'm feeling anxious. And while I'm sleeping, I think they might make an announcement that they are trying to bring Thad in. So I can't get deep sleep. This thing Thad has to go. For us, that's our goal. To send Thad back to the U.S. Here, the grandmas, they don't have power. That's why they sent it here. But they won't lay down and die because they don't have strength. A lot of supporters came. Supporters came from all over. People who had been opposing Thad in Sangju and Kimchan. The one Buddhists for whom the mountain Thad is being deployed on is a sacred site. Members of people's organizations in Gwangju. The protest transformed Sosongni. The whole road is, um, is just strung with banners from the trees, from the fences everywhere, saying, Sajukara, Pyeonghaora, go Thad, come peace. Visitors paint rocks with colorful messages of support and pile them on the sides of the road. The small parking lot in front of the town hall has been turned into a protection camp with a stage and communal kitchen. On the road leading up the mountain to the Thad deployment site, they've got tables and stacks of brightly colored plastic stools set up to blockade the road. People are there 24-7. They take shifts, stopping each car that tries to go through to make sure they aren't police or soldiers carrying supplies for Thad. During the week, congregations of Buddhist, Catholic, Protestant, and Wonburgyo members come by the busload to hold impromptu religious ceremonies in the middle of the road, because of the protests and blockades, the military had been forced to bring equipment into the site by helicopter because they couldn't access the roads. But in April, at a time when Koreans had already kicked out right-wing President Park and had yet to elect a successor, the U.S. military rushed to install Thad. People had heard rumors that the military would try to deploy that night and gathered to block the road. <laughs> I was here until 2 a.m., then went home to sleep. So I went in, and within an hour, I heard the sirens. Honestly, I slept with my clothes on. And so when I heard the siren, I ran out, and two of those asses were blocking my road. They turned the whole town upside down that time. There were 8,000 police there. Where did they get 8,000 of them? And so they were picking people up and moving them. Grandmas got hurt. If they called out, others would come with sticks. I got hurt. And that's who was supposed to protect people. But that day, it wasn't like that. It was like they wanted to kill us all. That night, the police brought the first two launchers up to the deployment site. They stood shoulder to shoulder, five rows deep, forming a wall on either side of the road. Villagers and supporters pushed against the police lines, threw water bottles over a sea of plastic helmets at the armored vehicles trying to squeak by. 
Over a megaphone, they yelled, this is our Korea. Even though several weeks had passed since the raid, you could still feel their sense of disappointment and betrayal. That these young Korean men had turned on their elders to serve the interests of the U.S. In Korea, the police force is made up in large part by young men who are drafted into policing as part of their mandatory military service. That day, even among the police officers, there were familiar faces. A neighbor's nephew, a grandson that had come to visit over the years. After the raid, some of the police officers sent letters to the village elders, apologizing for their actions. I asked the Haimonis, in the face of all this, what are their hopes for the future? The best thing is to live just like this. We just eat that to go away, and we're not paying a cent for it. Go ask the person who decided to bring it here to pay for money. Then tell him to off and go away. She was asking how we want Korea to be in the future. It will be good if there's no fad. We want to live without the war. That's right. A world without the war. We want to use our own hands to farm and eat and live, just to get rid of that. In Sosangni, people said over and over again that that is a weapon of war, and by bringing in weapons of war, you are calling for war. Isn't that common sense? Some of the elders here were teenagers when the Korean War broke out. They're part of the last living generation to experience the war. In the U.S., the war is a footnote buried in our history books, casually referred to as the Forgotten War. The Korean War has been brewing since the end of World War II. After dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, U.S. soldiers divided Korea along the 38th parallel into north and south and designated the area below the 38th parallel as an American occupation zone. When full-scale war broke out in the summer of 1950, Korea became a testing ground for the U.S. to hone the brutal tactics and technologies that they would later unleash on people around the world. The U.S. practiced things like saturation bombing in the South, and in the North designed bombing campaigns to exhaust the population. Within the first two years of the war, the U.S. had already destroyed every city, industrial area, and town in the North. So they began bombing irrigation dams, flooding farmlands to cause mass starvation. Along with bombs, the U.S. poured 600,000 tons of napalm over the country. Napalm that would burn through skin, muscle, and bone. It burned so hot it would suck the oxygen out of the air, suffocating everyone within the strike zone. Grace Cho is a historian and wrote extensively about the war in her book, Haunting the Korean Diaspora, Shame, Secrecy, and the Forgotten War. The summer of 1950 was unusually hot. This is how survivors of the war remember it, regardless of what temperatures actually registered on the thermometer. It was the first hot war of the Cold War, and entire villages were evacuated. Families gathered children and grandparents at a moment's notice and carried sacks of rice and pieces of their homes on their backs. They walked south along paths that would soon be well-worn by the millions of displaced persons. 
They packed up and traveled down the length of the peninsula, toward Busan and then northward again, waded across rivers, and watched their children drown, finally to return to earth that had been scorched and to ghostly piles of ashes that had once been homes. What they didn't know was that the U.S. military had been given, quote, complete authority to stop all civilian traffic in any direction, to place fire on them, including bombing, and strafing fire from low-flying aircraft. There was no difference between Koreans living in the North and those living in the South. So the U.S., unable to distinguish who the enemy was, indiscriminately killed people seeking refuge. One of the most well-known massacres of civilians is the one that took place in Nogunri in 1950. There, U.S. planes gunned down 400 civilian refugees, many of them families with young children. The heat that summer was particularly memorable for what it did to the flesh that littered the landscape. During the days and weeks after Nogunri, the few survivors returned to the site of the massacre to gather the remains of their family members. Hisuk was 16 in the summer of 1950. She escaped after witnessing the deaths of her mother, father, sister, and niece. Perhaps it had been the few words in English she called out to the Americans that had prevented them from shooting her. She continued walking southward, dazed, hungry, and encrusted with blood, her white dress turned stiff and brown. She came to the Naktong River, where the American military were selectively allowing refugees to cross the river, but only if they were young and female. People were saying everywhere that GIs did bad things to women. Hisuk turned around and walked back to Nogani. It had rained a lot that summer, so where the massacre had taken place, there were pools of stagnant, bloodied water that contained the dead. There she waded through the stench of decomposing corpses and found the body of her father. It seemed that the bones and flesh moved separately. I virtually scooped up the remains of my father, like mucus, with the cup of my bare hands. Nogunri was just one of 37 massacres documented in the South. There were countless more in the North. The active targeting of civilians is part of what made the war in Korea different from wars the world had seen before. It got so bad that just one month in, Colonel Turner Rogers wrote a memo saying, Our operations involving the strafing of civilians is sure to receive wide publicity and may cause embarrassment to the U.S. Air Force and U.S. government. This awareness didn't change the military's practices. Instead, the Pentagon just stopped documenting the bombings of villages and started referring to these villages as, quote, military targets to avoid negative press. Two years later, officials from China, North Korea, and the U.S. signed an armistice agreement. We have stopped the shooting. A temporary ceasefire on armed conflict. But a peace treaty to end the war was never signed. Since then, the ongoing war enabled a buildup of U.S. military bases, weapons, and troops in the South, and the development of a nuclear program in the North. For Korean people, the war unleashed trauma that would be passed on for generations. So for those who experienced the Korean War, the idea that war is something people would call for or invite in, 
It's unthinkable. In Sangju and Kimchan, small cities located on opposite sides of the mountain, people have been holding candlelight rallies to protest that every night for over a year. In Kimchan, a group of moms and kids dance to an upbeat pop song about opposing Thad. Behind them, even more gather, light each other's candles, and catch up. Xiaoyan has lived in Kimchan his whole life. At first, people were like, what is Thad? They didn't know what it was. They would say that if you opposed that, you were a North Korean, a sympathizer, a commie. The biggest problem was the media. When Thad was first announced, they said it was to block North Korea. So people thought, oh, if we don't have this, there won't be anything to block North Korea when they invade. But as time passed, people came to know more about that and began to oppose it. In Kimchan and the area surrounding the Thad deployment site, this is people's primary concern, that Thad was never meant to protect Koreans. Its location in Seongju County means that the system could not intercept missiles targeting Seoul, the area where half of South Korea's population lives. If anything, the U.S. installed the THAAD radar to spy on China. Since it was announced, China began a low-level trade war with South Korea, boycotting Korean products and even Korean pop stars. It's put South Korea in the familiar and uncomfortable position of having to navigate between the interests of two opposing powers. And a big part of the nightly protests has been about asserting that Korean people should determine their own future. In the beginning, 1,500, almost 2,000 people would come out every night. But as time went on, it became harder to come out. Last winter, there were about 150 of us who came out every day through the snow and rain. On average, there are 150 people who come out each night. These are the people who are protecting Kimchon and Korea and the world. For those 150 people, everything has changed. There are no more weekends, free time, nights. But on the other hand, I met a lot of people who I feel stick together more than brothers and sisters, than family. We will continue to live together with more chong. So even more people have concern for each other and take care of each other. In many ways, it's the community that's formed around opposing Thad that has made it possible for people to continue protesting. During busy seasons, people take care of each other's farms. Local bakers send bread and rice cakes for people to share at protests. They roast sweet potatoes over makeshift ovens and hand them out on cold nights. Even the kids write letters to the president and draw pictures about stopping Thad. But the biggest change may be in how people are thinking, not only about Thad, but about the history they've been taught their whole lives. Until now, we only received a partial education about the U.S. 
In writing Migul, the U.S., we use the Chinese character for beautiful, for me. We learn from when we were young kids that the U.S. is an angel nation that protects our country without asking for anything in return. But having this experience, seeing our land become U.S. military land, the U.S. behaving like everything is about their bottom line, I thought, we really don't know anything about the U.S. So I'd like the American people to move away from this dreamlike thinking, like they believe they're protecting world peace. And if you watch a lot of movies like Superman, it always looks like the U.S. is a country that protects world peace. So they use these movies to make people around the world believe that. Instead of that, I wish they would make cultural works that show the real image of the U.S. People around the world know that the U.S. is not like that. But even today's news, they say the U.S. came here as an invited guest. And they're doing this and that. But we've come to believe that this is a lie. Many people have woken up to the reality of the U.S., and there's still many more people who need to wake up to this. These questions. What if North Korea isn't the enemy? What if the U.S. isn't actually protecting South Korea? What is possible when we let go of these ideas? When I was in Sosangni, it was the week of 518, the anniversary of the Gwangju uprising and massacre. People talked about how they hadn't taken much interest in it at the time, that they had just believed what the government told them. And their eyes brimmed with tears as they shared how sorry they felt, that they had been on the wrong side of history. It was now for the first time that they were learning to sing songs like March of the Beloved and learning the truth of what had taken place in Gwangju. A few days later, in Gwangju, I met the women of the Gwangju May Women's Association. They were embroidering brightly colored butterflies and painting the lyrics to March of the Beloved onto a canvas for the people of Sosongi. From the uprising until now, our priority has always been reunification. We know it's not easy to talk about these things, and we want the people of Sosongni to feel our warmth, they said. In June, the women traveled to Sosongni and stayed with the elders there. They shared stories and sang songs together. In these moments, I saw that people could repair the gaping wounds left by history that they could untangle each other's han and break free of the cycles of war, occupation, and division that have shaped Korea's history. And maybe one day, all of us, divided and displaced by war, empire, militarism, that we might find each other 
and create a different kind of peace. Since I left Sosangri, a lot has happened. The newly elected president, Moon Jae-in, who had promised during his campaign to reevaluate Thad, visited the U.S. and assured Trump that the South was committed to deploying Thad. The Sosangri grandmas and grandpas have been attacked by right-wing nationalist groups and police. Despite huge mobilizations and blockades, the military installed the remaining launchers. Shortly afterward, a man from a nearby town went to Seoul and set himself on fire in protest. People have been talking about the psychological trauma of it all. But more than anything else, they want people to know that they haven't given up. They're still fighting to give future generations a world without war. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. You can learn more about the struggle to stop Thad at our website, radioproject.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to Ayo Sanu for chasing my three-year-old while I taped interviews, and to Chiyon Ri and Hella Organized Bay Area Koreans for their support throughout this process. The voiceovers you heard were done by David Changjae-ri, Chuyan ri JT Takagi, Chuyan Park, Liz Huck, and Claude Marks. Today's show included original music by Jio Im and Judy Chan. It also included tracks from new Minjung songs by Yi Hyungju, Oh Jae-hwan, and Hwang Kyung-ha. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Redman, Marie Cha, RJ Lazada, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Vera Tykulsker, and Sabine Blazant. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Ta-ha.